All right, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if you will. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I mentioned this uh, recently, but uh, when the lockdown came about and, and uh, things had to shut down and close down as far as meeting in churches, though we continued to provide uh, the live streaming for, for you all, uh, the Lord had put on, on my heart to focus our attention on continuing to teach the Word of God faithfully, word for word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But to do so in, in an area that would be very uh, uh, much reflective of what we are dealing with today, and dealing with as far as uh, the conditions of our country in a, in a very unique and unprecedented time. And uh, the teachings of First and Second Thessalonians, as well as what we're doing on Wednesday night with the book of Ecclesiastes, have all had their, their, uh, their importance to the time in which we're living. Uh, they have become relevant to what we are dealing with today in many different ways. Uh, Thessalonians, as far as prophecy is concerned, Ecclesiastes, as how we are to live today in the midst of what we see ourselves going through. First Thessalonians, of course, was a book that dealt with a, a young church's salvation, with its nurturing, and with its establishing of itself in the very truths of God's Word. All the while, being a young church, Paul made it and, and, and felt it necessary to teach them about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, to teach them about prophecy. And if he was compelled by the Spirit of God to teach them about prophecy, thousands of years before those prophecies would occur. How much more important is it for us today when we see the prophecies beginning to fall into place? How much more important is it for us to teach it? Because it is about to happen. Sadly, though, before this pandemic, there were a number of churches, I would say even the majority of churches, that had no desire whatsoever to talk about prophecy. Yet it is an important aspect for every church. And I believe that this pandemic has awakened the church to be prophetic, to be understanding of the prophetic, to be understanding of what Christ is going to do and will do in a very, very short time. Because his coming for his church can happen at any moment. It is what is called imminency. It is imminent. It is to take place and can even take place now. That would be wonderful if it did. But as he writes a second letter, not long after the first, it was because there were certain things being said and even written uh, and being applied to, uh, to Paul as if he had written these things that, that uh, the day of Christ had already passed and the day of the Lord had already begun. The rapture had come and gone and that uh, the tribulation period was now happening. And Paul says, no, that is not what I have said. That is not what I am saying. I didn't write that letter. 
So what he has to do here in, chapter, in the second letter of Thessalonians is remind the church about their hope. Because he had blessed them and, and commended them for their faith, their hope, and their love. But as he begins the second letter, he, he, he talks about their faith and their love, but he doesn't mention their hope. Because their hope had waned. Because of what they had believed in all of these false reports. So, as we'll see, there were certain things that he taught them in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and it brings us to chapter 3, where he closes this letter out by saying, Finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. So this second letter from Paul to the young church in Thessalonica was a necessary companion to the first epistle that so encouraged them to continue to abound in the word of God, in the love of Christ, and in their godly character so inspired by the Holy Spirit. And because of the intensity of the persecution they were experiencing, Paul's second letter offered them three things of great comfort and value, especially to their concerns about Christ's return. So chapter 1 taught them and, and, and Paul offered to them encouragement in suffering. Paul taught them encouragement in suffering. In the second chapter, chapter 2, Paul offers them enlightenment about the day of the Lord. He makes it very clear about the coming of the day of the Lord, about the coming of the man of sin, the coming of the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, this being, of course, the Antichrist. There is one coming. Folks, this, this pandemic is, and I've said this before, a global conditioning of men's minds to control man to the need, not only for a one-world government and a one-world religion and a one-world monetary system, but a one-world world leader. It is as clear as can be seen in the scriptures. So Paul is dealing with them about that then, but it truly applies to us today. Now he concluded the second chapter by saying this in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 16, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So this brings us to the third thing that he is offering to this church, and that is establishment of Christian living. He is wanting them to be established in their Christian life, in their Christian walk, in their Christian actions. Paul is calling for them to walk in the light of God, by the grace of God, given to them. 
The problem, as we shall see, is that some of the Thessalonian believers have become somewhat lazy, living off of others, and their idleness caused them to become busybodies. And so this really is the practical section of his letter. As some might say, this is where the rubber meets the road for the church in Thessalonica. So what Paul does is begins, he begins with a plea. He pleads with this church in verses 1 and 2 for a couple of things. Very important things that he, that he asks for. He says, finally, brethren, verses 1 and 2. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. See, that should shock a lot of people in the church today. Because there's this mindset in churches today that there's, there's, you know, there's ministers and they pray for you and, and there's the people that need the, that need the prayer. But the scriptures tell us we are all to pray. We are all to be those who pray for others. And apostles need prayer too. As Paul says, pray for us. And pastors and ministers need prayer too. And we need to be praying for them. So he says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. In other words, that wherever God calls us, that the word may have that free, open run to go forth and touch men's lives. And be glorified even as it is with you. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Very important to understand that last phrase, as we will in just a moment. But while the Thessalonians needed prayer in their trials and tribulations, they also needed to pray for others. It has been said that assuming a burden of prayer for others lightens one's own load. And I, I fully agree with that. I have told many people many times when they've come in with great burdens. I said, I I am going to pray with you and I'm going to pray for you and with you. But I'm going to encourage you to do something. And I'm not trying to lighten lighten the, the idea or the understanding of how great your burdens are, but I'm going to ask you to do one thing. I'm going to want you to find someone to pray for or find others to pray for. Because when you begin to pray for others, that lightens your load. If you don't pray for others, then all you think about is you, 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 and you don't think about anybody else. And it's amazing what, uh, what testimonies I've heard. Ah, oh, what a blessing it was to pray for others. And, I, I just, I, and, and then I see what the Lord is doing for me. That's exactly what we need to understand about prayer. The apostles needed prayer too. And Paul requested prayer for two matters. He said, first of all, he asked for prayer that the word of God would, would spread rapidly and, and accomplish its successful work in the hearts of those receiving it, to the end that God's word would be glorified as it was in the Thessalonian church. The word of God was glorified there because of their establishment in the faith. This young church group knew from their own experiences how the Lord worked in people's hearts to prepare them to receive the gospel so they could pray with conviction that God would honor his word by causing others who heard it to believe it. The word of God is to be honored and glorified. It is much more than just a guidebook. It is the word of God 
from the lips of God. It is the word of God from the lips of God. And may I add, from the heart of God as well. And the Lord himself has promised that his word would be free to perform its work. Most of us should be familiar with Isaiah 55 verse 11, where it says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. I mean, this is a powerful statement about God's word. He says, my word that goeth forth out of my mouth, it's not going to come back to me empty. God's word never returns to him empty. But it's going to accomplish what he sends it forth to do. And it shall prosper. So always remember that about God's word. The second prayer request found in verse 2 of our text was for deliverance from enemies of the gospel. As the apostles and disciples traveled as missionaries from city to city, there were always opponents to the message of Messiah. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and the Thessalonians knew this firsthand. And these enemies were doing something quite irrational. They were resisting the free gift of God in Jesus Christ. They were resisting the free gift of God. They were arguing against it. And, 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 and strongly arguing against it. And yet when the gospel went forth, what was Paul saying about it? It's a free gift. We all know what it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Paul said to the Roman church, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yet how many people today have rejected that? You know, it's kind of interesting because the reason I call it irrational is because nowadays people say, hey, we got this for free and this is for free, this is for free. People like free stuff. Well, the gospel's free. Oh. <laughs> and it's eternal. It's eternal. So Paul's response to the Thessalonians, going back to them, was this in verses 3 through 5. But the Lord is faithful. He says, listen, uh, we want you to be delivered from, from these wicked men who, who have no faith. It kind of makes you think that, that they, they, they're probably trusting everybody that they listen to. Let's bring that to forward to today. How many voices, and I, I think I mentioned this on, on Wednesday night, but how many voices are we hearing? Every day on the, on the, on the TV, whether it's the president or his, or his coronavirus task force or, or many others, you know, depending on what news source you listen to, boy, there's all kinds of voices out there. Some of them are really rank. Voice after voice after voice. People telling you, listen to science, while they don't listen to science themselves. A lot of voices. Some people are afraid today and won't go out of their houses. Why? 
because somebody told them you shouldn't. But all men do not have faith. Then he says, but the Lord is faithful. That's the one voice that I tell you we need to listen to. The Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. The simple truth is man cannot be trusted, but God can. Man cannot be trusted, but God can. He alone is completely and perfectly faithful. And it is this faithful God who will establish us and guard us from the wicked one. And by the way, he guards us from the wicked one every day. And he never gets tired of it. And think about this. He never says, you know, I'm really tired of guarding you from the wicked one. I'm taking a vacation. You're on your own for a week. How would that sound to you? Okay? Oh, yeah, we can handle it, Lord. Really? We can't handle one minute without God in this life. It is the Lord who will establish and strengthen and fix our hearts to withstand any and all trials and temptations from the enemy and his emissaries, along with his great and powerful protection that the Lord gives us. And just remember this, the character of God should always be the basis for a believer's confidence. The character of God should always be the basis for a believer's confidence. We are confident in God because he is holy, holy, holy. He is righteous, he is just, he is true, he is merciful, he is gracious. And we can trust in him and trust in him fully. He has promised and he will deliver. Now Paul would have confidence that the Thessalonian believers would continue to obey his instructions. Not so much in their inherent power, but in the fact that they were in Christ. That is the the apostles and and his disciples. But they in fact were in Christ and the Lord would work in them. This is what he's saying in this, in this passage. We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says back in verse 4, that you both do and will do the things we command you. Please understand this. Paul was not going to give them commands from his own mind. You know, there are some very legalistic churches today. They'll take the Word of God, twist the Word of God a little bit, just so that they command people how to do things, how to live their life, how to do one thing or another, rather than just teaching the Word of God. Paul didn't do that. Paul gave them the Word of God. So when he commands them, he's commanding them based on the Word of God, not based on his own doctrine or his own theology or his own uh, tradition, as it were. And that's the point here. And it is the Lord that works in them. And this is what he's trying to encourage them. Just as he he encouraged the Philippian church in Philippians 1 verses 3 through 6. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests 
with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which, be, which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you. Who began the work in you, the work of faith? Who was it? Was it the person that led you to Christ, or was it Christ himself? It was Christ himself. Be confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will perform it, which that, that the fullness of that word is he will perform it until he completes it. God's not finished with any of us here today. How many of you are breathing? Praise the Lord. I know it's a little hard if you have to wear a mask, but you know, it's a, but you're still breathing. That's a good thing. You're alive. And until the Lord desires to take you home, guess what? He's going to continue to perform and complete his work in you. Thank God he's not done with us. Amen? So getting back to verse 4, or I'm sorry, verse 5 of our text, the significance of this verse verse must be embraced. Verse 5, that says, And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Paul desired that these new believers would grow in the faith, not remain spiritual babes all their lives. And not only grow, but keep growing in the faith as he directs their hearts, which is manifested outwardly in love and patience. What would that be? That's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, as Paul describes it in Galatians chapter 5, is love, joy, peace, and a whole bunch of other things. But the fourth one is long-suffering, patience. Manifesting love and patience, the fruit of the Spirit. Well, that is my desire for this church as well. That we, in everything we do, manifest the love of God, the joy of the Lord, the peace of God, and the patience of Christ. Because let's face it, just think about yourself and think about how patient the Lord is with you and with me. We have to consider that. If he wasn't, if we were to believe every uh, legalistic preacher that's out there, we'd all, we'd all be just little piles of, of ashes on top of your chairs. God says, I'm done with you. You know? But God's not done with us. How patient is he with us? Wonderfully patient, I would say. To Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, listen to this. Remember this, 2 Timothy, last letter Paul wrote. One of the most personal letters that an apostle would write. Paul knew that as soon as he would put his pen down, possibly, that he would be entering into glory, that he would be taken, executed on this earth, but entering into glory spiritually and eternally. And he says to Timothy, In 2 Timothy 4, 6, For I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. 
I have kept the faith. By the way, this is not boasting. This is humility. He's humbly saying, I, I've come, I, I realize now. My course is finished. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only. If he, if he was being boastful, he wouldn't mention anybody else. He doesn't say that. He says, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. To everyone that is looking for Jesus Christ, to everyone that knows that he's coming, to everyone that can't wait to see Jesus face to face, there's a crown of righteousness. And the righteousness that the Lord is giving us in that crown is only based upon the righteousness that is his and not ours. It is the crown of righteousness that comes because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As he goes on into the next section of this letter, Paul now deals with the avoidance of bad company. And it's a pretty strong statement that he makes here. Begins in verse 6 by saying, Now we command you, brethren. Now notice the command. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. That's a powerful statement. Doctrinal error concerning the day of the Lord had led to disorderly conduct in the church. And you'll notice that Paul did not offer suggestions. He commanded in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this wasn't just an issue from Paul's heart. It was from the Lord that those believers who were walking disorderly and were unruly were to be avoided. It was as if those who were in the, in the nation of Israel or the, or the children of Israel that would have become unclean over one thing or another, they were to be taken out of the way until they were clean again. In some cases voluntarily, in other cases involuntarily. But nonetheless, they had to be moved out of the, out of the way, outside of the congregation of Israel. You remember back in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in verses 14 and 15, where Paul says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Now we can stop there based on what we're looking at today in 2 Thessalonians, but there's a little bit more that we need to see here. But, but notice this. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Then he says, See that none render evil for evil unto any man. But ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Obviously, that warning had not been heeded, and then became more unruly after the first letter was given to the church. So Paul was prescribing a harsher discipline 
the use of the present tense of the verb walketh, there in verse 6, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, it's in the present tense, it denotes a deliberate course of action. In other words, their disorderly conduct was not an occasional lapse, but had become a willful, persistent practice. And that practice needed to be stopped. Paul got into specifics of what they were doing wrong and used his own life as an example of how they should be living and what they should be doing. Let's read on, verses 7 through 9 now. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught. In other words, we didn't, we didn't eat anybody's bread, you know, and not pay for it. Or as, as if to say, you know, we, 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 we mooched off of somebody. But wrought with labor and travail night and day. In other words, we worked. We labored. We travailed. We sweated. We, we, we agonized night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, <clears throat> but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. Now, that word ensample there, I've, I've talked about it before, has a different meaning than the word example. Sadly, in modern translations, they just go ahead and make the word ensample the word example, but ensample has a meaning. And I've talked about this before. Ensample means... Follow what I do so that it is the very pattern that you yourself will now do from now on. That's a stronger statement in a word than just to say, here's an example, follow it if you want. So Paul worked to support his ministry and for the purpose of letting the gospel message shine brightly through his example, but it was also for them as an end sample, that they would see him work so that they would work. The Thessalonians saw firsthand how Paul conducted himself, working so as not to be a burden <clears throat> to them. The ensample would be that they would work not to be a burden to anybody else. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul made it clear that he as an apostle had the right to request support. But he wanted to set an example of hard work and prove any and all accusations that he preached the gospel for gain to be false. So he says in 1 Corinthians 9 verses 13 and 14, Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And of course, using his, his experience as, as, a, uh, as a Jewish uh, believer. Uh, you know, in other words, being tied into the temple and all of that. And they, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so has the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So he, he, so he makes it clear that this is allowed by God. That those who serve in the, in, the, in, the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ will be taken care of by the gospel. But if Paul worked to meet his own personal needs and to move the gospel message forward, how could they then justify their own unruly behavior? That's the point here. 
So notice what he goes on to say going back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Notice the next verse. This should be written in our Constitution of the United States. Listen. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Well, that makes sense. That certainly would take care of a tremendous welfare debt. It's not to say that some people couldn't use the help at, at times, but you know, it's usually when it's presented, it should always be presented as something that's temporary so that we can get you back on your feet so that you can work and, and feed your families. But it's become big business now for some people to live off the government. Now, understand that the times in which we're living right now, it's a very unique situation. Some of you have received uh, uh, these uh, checks and all from the government. Uh, we're not going to talk about that. It's, you know, I mean, if God took care of you in some way, then it was the Lord that took care of you. Still, give, give thanks to the Lord for these things. You know, but the, the point of the matter is, even that can be taken uh, you know, for granted and not understood. So we understand, you know, some people today want to work, but they can't. So understand that. So notice, first of all, that Paul says that if any will not work. See, that's the whole point here in what he's saying in verse 10. That if any will not work, neither should they eat. He doesn't say cannot work. He's obviously not speaking of those who can't work because of physical or medical problems. Or because your business has been shut down or whatever. Or those trying, to, trying hard to find work but haven't yet. He is speaking of those who refuse to work. It is a matter of the will, not of ability. They are just plain lazy and are satisfied living off of others' hard work, and in some cases living off the church. I gave an example last night. I was talking about people that have, uh, you know, that, that come to realize, you know, that we do have a, uh, a food, uh, a food uh, pantry, a food bank, as it were, and we, we help as many people as we can. And, and by the way, those of you who help us to stock it and restock it, you are invaluable, and, and we thank you so much for that. But, but, but listen, you know, we, we, we want to be careful, too, because we, we want to help you all, because we know that there are times of trouble and trial. So don't be afraid to come, and don't be embarrassed to come and ask that if you need to help, go through it and get it. But some people, even outside of the church, they'll find out, hey, they got a food bank. So they'll come, and they say, well, we need food, you know, we, this and this. Do you come here to the church? Oh, no, well, you know, yeah, we've been here. Well, I haven't seen you, you know, that kind of thing. But, but they come, and, and, and we'll give them something, you know. And then they come with a disguise next time. You know. Then they'll come with a different disguise the next time. We've actually had some people just call, and they keep calling, and they keep, you know, and, and it's like, hey, that's got to stop. Because it's to you first here in this church that we want to take care of. We will help other people. But again, it's not so that it's here just for you and you want it. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, we're not trying to be, you know, cold-hearted here. We're, we're more concerned with doing as the Lord has called us to, to take care of each other. So, anyway. Okay, I'm, give me a second. I'm letting my blood pressure go down. Okay. The next thing is that he commands now those who are idle and lazy. An even stronger statement here in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 11 through 15, he says, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. And by the way, the word disorderly is, is, uh, is the word ataktos in, uh, 
in, uh, in, in the Greek, and it, it means morally unruly. So think about that. Uh, there are some of you which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busy bodies. Now, them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and, and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, not only were some of these people not working, but their idleness gave way to them becoming busy bodies. Busy bodies, one word. In other words, sticking their noses into other people's business. Some have said that the, the best definition of a busybody is, is one who doesn't mind his own business, but minds the business of others. So this Greek word for busybodies can literally be translated as those who have no business and yet are busy with everybody else's business, leading a lounging, gadding, gossiping, meddlesome life. It is really a word that means to meddle in other people's affairs, in other people's business. And instead of tending to their own business of earning a living, they were meddling in the business of others. Now, now we know gossip is not something that we should be doing in the church. So we need to be careful about that. But that usually comes from being idle and sitting around and thinking of, you know, how to get involved in somebody else's affairs and not deal with things properly. And speaking to Timothy of some young widows, this is what uh, Paul said in 1 Timothy 5 verse 13. And with all they learned to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. Tattlers, that's an interesting word. Tattlers, tattletales. Remember that? Hey, you're a tattletale, you know. Tattletale, tattletale. Nobody likes tattletales, man. Especially if you find out something about somebody and you go out and tell somebody else. Hey, who's, that's not your business. All right. Well, let's get out of junior high. So Paul, in view of their union with the Lord Jesus Christ, commanded them and exhorted them to settle down by working in their business with quietness and eat their own bread or earn their own bread, as it were, and not sponging off of others. Turning to the faithful, Paul urged them to continue in doing what they knew to be right, regardless of the unruly, when others take the easy paths of irresponsibility and seemingly prosper in them, it would be easy to get discouraged and be tempted to join them. But the apostle said, in effect, don't give up. Don't give up. Listen to the word and do it. Listen to the word of God and do the word of God. So to the others, there were consequences for their actions or their lack thereof. The withdrawal from someone being disciplined was not to create an enemy, but to warn and admonish an erring brother or sister. It was, in fact, to avoid the appearance of condoning. To avoid the appearance of condoning their actions. 
you have to withdraw from them. This wasn't as painfully severe, but it was all to lead to the grace of forgiving and of comforting, which was to bring the one having done wrong to true repentance. G. Campbell Morgan once said this. He said, love never slights holiness, but holiness never slays love. I want to repeat it because I want you to understand what that says. Love never slights holiness, but holiness never slays love. Just to think of yourself as being somebody who wants to stay holy or be holy doesn't mean that you stop being a loving person. We want to live our lives right before God, but we never discount the love of God because we can't be where we are without the love of Christ without his love toward us. And remember in Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, where Paul said, Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now why does Paul say it that way? Because he's saying, listen, you which are spiritual, don't think that you're spiritual in and of yourself and that you're above everybody. No. You who are spiritual, restore one who has fallen and has been overtaken in a fault. Restore him in the spirit of meekness because you could be where he is. You could be there where they are. Therefore, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love one another as Christ has loved you. We can only be spiritual if we have surrendered to the mercies, the grace, and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, though there's a withdrawal, to avoid the appearance of condoning someone's actions that are unruly. It is to finally get them to see that they need to repent and turn back to God. In closing, Paul says this in verses 16 through 18, Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. Paul says, I want you to know this is me, so I'm going to sign this letter. He probably had Silas or Timothy write his, his letter, but then he signs it himself. So they'll know it's him. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. He begins... Or he ends the letter as he begins all his letters, with the grace of God, with the undeserved favor of God. Paul prayed for a church experiencing persecution and tribulation, beseeching the Lord of peace to fill their lives with his peace. And the only true peace is found 
in the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. The peace that the Lord gives us is a peace that is similar to the shalom of the Hebrew language. The peace of Israel and the God of Israel, the peace that is given to us by him is one that is whole, therefore wholeness, one that is complete, therefore it's completeness. It is a peace that is perfect, not missing any parts to it, therefore perfection. This is what we offer to people when we say to them, Shalom. May God's wholeness and completeness and God's perfection be upon you completely and fully for all of your life, for every breath that you take. If I never see you again, may God's peace be on you. The world does not have this kind of peace. The world talks a lot about peace. The United Nations, they talk about peace all the time. And then, of course, after they have some kind of declaration for some kind of a peace summit or a peace conference, the next day there's nation against nation battling and killing people. Well, what did Jesus say? In John 16, verse 33, Jesus said this, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. Irene in the Greek, but shalom in the Hebrew. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace. Thou will keep him in perfect shalom, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. You want perfect peace from God? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. We sang about that today. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in the peace of God. And as Paul stated in his letter with the grace of God, he concludes with the grace of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. May God's grace be upon you today. And if you've been with us for any amount of time over the last few weeks, guess what? We've just finished the second full book in the scriptures that I pray will encourage your heart through this time, as we're moving more and more into uh, a more open uh, time, you know. There's still a lot to overcome. But how can we not overcome when we have the God of peace with us? And when we have the peace of God that passes all understanding in our hearts and in our lives through Jesus Christ, the Prince 
of peace. Amen?